On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to the About Books podcast and program. Now joining us in just a few minutes is Reginald Dwayne Betts. He's an author and he's the founder of an organization that provides books for incarcerated people. But first, here's a look at one social media phenomenon taking the publishing industry by storm. It's called BookTok. It's where users of the social media site TikTok record themselves reviewing, reacting to, or even acting out books, and then they post the videos using the hashtag BookTok. BookTok began during the pandemic. Today, more than 11 million BookTok videos exist, with over 60 billion, with a B, views. Here's just one recent example. Telling you if popular BookTok books are worth the hype. Yes deals with more than romance. We get it, you're short. Not my fav. Yes. Opened up my perspective on relationships. No. Way too long and repetitive. So much fun, yes. Good, but not as much as everyone says I'm a. Yes. Love isn't always a happy ending. Now, according to a New York Times story, BookTok helped authors sell 20 million print books last year. And booksellers are certainly taking notice of the sales potential. Barnes & Noble recently partnered with TikTok for what it calls the BookTok Challenge. Readers are encouraged to pick a book from their BookTok list, read it, and then, of course, post about it using the hashtag BookTokChallenge. Several TikTok influencers are working to promote the challenge. Here's one of those posts. I may be biased because I'm a summer baby all the way, but summertime is the best time to visit new places, experience new things, learn about new cultures, and do things that you haven't done before. But of course. Easiest way to travel to new places is by reading a book, and this summer I'm going to be rereading my favorite classic, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's a book about magical realism, an incredible, incredible book. But I want to hear what you guys are reading, so please tell me what book you're reading, the genre, your author, everything, and hashtag Book Talk Challenge so me and him can duet and stitch some of those videos. Please join this challenge. I want to see it. Well, along with booksellers, public libraries have also embraced this technology. Some like the Gwinnett County Public Library in Georgia, 
have entire web pages devoted to book talk trending titles. Others, like the Scarsdale Public Library in New York, have started their own book talk book clubs. Well, speaking of libraries, a focus now on one particular kind of library. Freedom Reads is a group looking to bring books to prisons. They're known as Freedom Libraries. And we're joined now by the founder and director of Freedom Reads, Reginald Dwayne Betts. Well, Reginald Dwayne Betts, what is Freedom Reads? Uh, that's interesting. I think um, Freedom Reads is in some ways my life story, um, but it's in some ways a story of, of literature. It is this organization that I built to so that we build micro libraries and we install them in the prisons. And we don't just put them in the prisons at some like location that's away from the housing unit. We put it where you spend 70, 80 percent of your time. We put it in the housing units and the, the bookshelves are, are curved. You know, they're made out of walnut or maple. And a 500-book collection has been curated by me in discussions and conversations with many others. But it really is just an argument for the fact that uh, we need books because they make us less lonely. We need books because they make us feel more connected to the world. And and we read books because um, they make us know ourselves better. Where'd you get the idea? I don't know. You ever had an idea that you felt like has been with you for your entire life? You know, I went to prison when I was 16. I confessed to carjacking somebody and I was at my lowest point and I was in prison and I needed models and I found some of those in the men around me, but really um, I needed experiences of the world as well. Faced with a nine year prison sentence, I wanted to still be able to grow and be able to develop. And, and I found that in books. I found books to create an opportunity for me to, to, to go to the places that I couldn't go to, to dream the dreams that I couldn't conjure for myself. Uh, for myself. And most importantly, I found books as a way to connect to my family and the people around me. And so that was the foundation of my life. It's where I became a writer, but also that's been a primary way that I've found to make a, a impact on the world and really on the other li- the lives of others who are incarcerated. Mr. Betts, you seem very specific about the design of the bookshelf being curved in Walnut and the number of books, 500. Why is that? I mean, the design, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, the design is like this. And um, and when you look at it, you know, one of the reasons why I'm really specific about this is that it creates this opportunity for people not just to go to a shelf and um, and experience the the browsing of books as a, as a solitary thing, but it allows you to do it in community. It allows two, three, four, five people to be together around around books and engage with those books. And in terms of 500 books, the, the truth is that you think about how many books could sustain you that you could like reasonably expect to, to like live with over a five year period, six year period. And 500 seems to be just that number, where even if you don't read all of them, you could become familiar with all of them. And so the idea was to give you something that wasn't overwhelming, but will give you a glimpse into the whole history of literature from from the Iliad and the Odyssey to Gabriel Zevin's The Story Life of A.J. AJ Finkery. And do the prisons have a say in what kind of books can go into these libraries? <laughs> they have a say if they decide that some of them can't go in. <laughs> um, and that, that has happened very rarely. You know, I, I've, I've had this book list approved by every prison that we worked with. Um, I think because we built one of these freedom libraries for the staff as well, so this is not just a project solely directed at people that's incarcerated. We want to build uh, relationships and communities and conversations um, across the wall in between everybody that goes in there 
uh, whether they're going in there to work or they're going in there to serve time. And so, you know, because we built one for the staff too, I think that um, that they recognize that that the books are also for them. And if something comes up, it's usually around, um, if something ever comes up, I know it'll be around institutional security. And, and I understand that, but we haven't had to deal with that as of yet. How many prisons are you in? And what is the process of getting this library in a prison? So right now we're in prisons. We're in prisons in Massachusetts, in Louisiana, in New York, uh, in Colorado, and, um, and, and also in Illinois. And we're on the road to being in North Dakota and, and several other states right now that we're in close conversations with. And the process is really simple. You know, I had the great fortune of presenting to all of the leadership of the Department of Corrections, all of the executive leadership um, each of the past couple of years. And so they heard me talk about the project. They heard me present the project. And basically they reach out to us or we reach out to them. And then it's just a process of going through the steps where they send us um, particular prisons that they choose to partner with because some prisons already have a lot of programs, some don't. And so we're choosing pilot places where this would be most beneficial. Uh, they send us the, the layout of the housing unit or they send us the layout of, of whatever space where they want it to be. So it might be a, a recreation room that's just adjacent to the housing unit. And then once we get the layout, we work with our, our design team at Mass Design. They partner with us from the very beginning. And basically we, we design what the space will look like with the library. And then they approve it. And then we have them built and then we deliver them. And when we deliver them, um, I usually talk, we usually have an event or we bring another writer in to have an event. Because the other thing that happens when you're in prison is nobody comes to see you. You know, nobody, writers don't, when you set up your book tour, you don't think, let me go to the local prison. And so the other thing we're doing with Freedom Reads is, is making those on the inside visible. I mean, Charles Dickens is still probably the most prominent writer to visit an American prison. And that says something that's really shameful. You know, we want to correct that. So we want to give writers opportunities to come inside and see what it's like to be inside a prison. But maybe more importantly, to have those serving time see more possibility. Because if you go to any college in this country, you have dozens of speakers coming in every month, if not every week. So we want to create some of that for the people in prison so they can sense more possibility. And what have you heard from some of the prisoners about these libraries? I actually have a letter, you know, right here. I mean, people are excited. People are excited about the book. I remember one time um, I was talking to a group of guys who had the Freedom Library with them. And the guy tells me, he says, um, I never heard of bar scans. I never heard of this book, but you know, I'm Italian and I've been locked up for more than 25 years. And, and my family is from this small region of Italy that this book is about. I know it's a novel, but it feels like I'm meeting my family for the first time in decades. And I think it's just been um, a lot of radical possibility like that. People saying how much they appreciate the opportunity to engage with these books, but also how much they appreciate the opportunity to engage with writers that we send uh, inside with the books. Have you run into the problem of illiteracy in the prisons? Yeah, I mean, this is the front end of the project. And so we are expecting that to happen. And what we're doing to counter that, because also by having the books in the space, it's not just inviting people that already love books. It's allowing it to be a model, a locus point, a place where you could go to discover, right? And one of the things we do by having people come in, and usually the writers come in and they read from their own works, but they also read some beloved poems or passages from other people to encourage this notion of reading and reading out loud, not just being from your own work. Um, but finally, we have a, a theater program. I turned my last collection of poems, Felon, into a one-person solo show. And the reason I did that is because I wanted my words to be able to live in the air. 
And I wanted my words to be able to bridge that literacy gap. So it's me, you know, performing the poems and telling stories, but, but it gives you a glimpse of what's inside the book. And we have a, a project where we work with this organization called Literature to Life, where they've turned like Richard Wright's Black Boy or, or Juno Diaz's A Brief Wondrous Life for Oscar Wilde or The Late Homecomer. They've turned these books, um, Fahrenheit 451, they've turned these books into 45 to 50 minute solo shows, which allows the book to come in and be alive in the air. And when we bring 50 copies or 100 copies of that same book, now all of a sudden a person who, who is illiterate understands that a book is just a collection of words that tells a story. And they might not be able to read those words, but they can hear the story. And so the recognizing that they can hear the story and understand the story might prompt them to do the work that's necessary to begin to read the books. So we do think about the, the, the literacy challenge. And we think that the Freedom Library is an intervention in that as well, not only because it brings the books into your living space, um, but because we bring writers and we bring the, the stories that get to live in the air that encourage you to want to discover what's between the pages of a book. Reginald Dwayne Betts, you mentioned that you were incarcerated at age 16 for carjacking. How long were you in? I was in for uh, about eight and a half years. Yeah. Did you have access to books or did you start writing while you were in prison? I, I started writing while I was in prison. And, and the main reason is because, um, you know, confronted with, with my own my own violence and my own failures and, and, and making my mother weep, I, I wanted to figure out what I could be in the world and, and not just waste the nine years. And I decided to be a writer uh, for no other reason than I knew that I would always have access to a, a pen or a pencil and some paper. And and I had always loved books, but never considered the possibility of becoming a writer. Uh, when I went inside, I, I got books. My mother, you know, sent me money to buy books. My family members wrote books to me. Um, I was the, the GED instructor. I remember she gave me Sophie's Choice. I was looking for Sophie's World, which is a philosophy book. And I told her I was looking for Sophie's World. And she was like, I think you're mistaken. But I found this book called Sophie's Choice. And, and, and you should read this one. I was 16 years old reading Sophie's Choice, and I'm all arrogant, thinking, woe is me. And all of a sudden, I understand profound struggles that I had no real glimpse of. I remember reading A Lesson Before Dying um, by Ernest Gaines, and it deeply changing what I thought about what it means to have dignity. And so throughout my time in prison, you know, books weren't always readily available. They weren't on the housing units, and that's why I framed the project in this way. You would have to go to the library. I did time in two or three prisons that didn't have libraries at all. I did time in super maximum security prisons that didn't allow us to, to leave our housing unit. So there was no possibility of going into a library. Uh, but we still found books. You know, we were desperate for books. And so I worked 23 cent an hour jobs. Sometimes I work a whole month to buy one book. You know, you work 40 hours just to buy one collection of poetry by Lucille Clifton. And, and you learn that words matter, that words are, are like, the life, life bread for some folks. And so, um, yeah, I, I did eight and a half years and, and, and what allowed me to survive um, beyond the, 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 the men I did time with that became my brothers, what really you know, allowed me to survive um, beyond the love for my family, for my mom and the other folks that supported me, the thing that really allowed me to survive long stretches in solitary confinement, uh, the despair, you know, the sort of sorrow, the regret, what allowed me to deal with it was, was books, it was, it was literature. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mr. Betts, do you remember the first thing you wrote in the first time you put a pen to paper in prison? I, rem- I probably got it in the closet. I remember the first book that led me to write because at first I was just writing these essays and they were meandering essays that really didn't capture the world around me. It was just inside my head. And I believed that I had something thoughtful to say and I really didn't. And then I got the Black Poets by Delhi Randall. I was in solitary confinement and somebody slid it under my cell door. And amongst the poets that I discovered from Robert Hayden to Sonia Sanchez to you know, Lucille Clifton, all of these folks, I discovered Etheridge Knight. And I learned that he was in prison. And because he had served time in prison and had become a writer, I thought I could become a writer and I could become a poet, right? Because I'd already said I would be a writer, but I didn't know what kind. And so it was only a year after saying I would be a writer that I learned that no, I would be a poet. And those first poems were really about time in prison. That was the first time that I thought that this was a, a worthy subject to write about. And I just, I imitated the poems that I read and I tried to tried to become, you know, these people were like Marvel characters to me. So I was, I was trying to become Sonia Sanchez. I was trying to become Robert Hayden, Sterling Brown, you know, Jack Gilbert, Shakespeare. I wanted to, to write like these folks. And so a lot of my early work was just, just mimicry. What is it about poetry and why is that important to you? It's a Joseph Brodsky line. He says, I have survived for want of wild beasts still cages. And you could carry that line around with you and all of a sudden you're connected to to this guy who was Russian and experienced exile. That that line connects his experience to mine. Um, Come celebrate with me. Every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. That's, That's Lucille Clifton. I mean, you could carry one line of poetry in your head and it's a whole world. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices, right? Like these lines by these poets, they do more than just, just depict the moment. They, they reveal a world and each time you say it, it reveals a different aspect of the world. And so I think for me, uh, when I found poetry, I found the, the possibility of um, in a matter of 14 lines or 20 lines or 30 lines, capturing everything that, that people aim for in a novel everything that people aim for in a short story. How many books have you published? I published four. Uh, and I got one coming out in January called Redaction, which is filled with new poetry and artwork by me and Titus Kafar. So that'll be my fifth book, which, which is astonishing in some ways because I, I said I wanted to be a writer and then I said I wanted to be a poet. But I never said I wanted to publish books. You know, my, my relationship to the idea of writing and even my relationship to books wasn't through what it means to publish it. You know, my, my relationship to these objects was through the, the possibilities that they held for me. It was only much later when I when I came home from prison that I realized that um that people weren't printing the books out, you know, on their on their printers at home. You know, it was the first because I hadn't really gone to bookstores before I went to prison either. And and so so libraries were these magical places where where like the books were something dropped off by a store. You know, the the books just showed up. And, uh, and in some ways, maybe that's what Freedom Reads is. You know, it's just these books that's just showing up as if dropped off by a stork. And, and the medium that matters is the word. It's, it's not even the publisher. It's not the awards that come with it. The only thing that matters is the stories that, that are contained therein. In fact, the only reason the writers matter, truly, if you read a good book, 
the writer should disappear. The only reason that the writer matters is because in their disappearing, as you read their words, they become so important and urgently so that you want to discover them again in the next book, in the next book, in the next book. And so, you know, I published four books and have one on the way. And I, I never imagined that I would, it's not that I didn't imagine that I would publish books. That just wasn't the point. And I, I'm glad that I've gotten to this destination because I think the the journey has been, you know, what has mattered, which is which is trying to write something that matters to myself and, and, and to people who are generous enough to read me. If the words are so good, the writer should disappear. I'm going to I'm going to use that line, if I may. Um, you got out of prison 24, 25 years old. What what's been the path since then? I got out of prison and didn't know what the word semester went, uh, meant. And so I went to the University of Maryland and my path has been through college and I knew that would be the case. But it has also been through um, an endless process of confronting the things I don't know and, and learning not to be ashamed of it. And I, I didn't know what semester meant because I went to the school in the middle of the second semester and imagined that I could start college in March. And, and I remember that moment when he told me to go uh, to community college and that I could enroll in the summertime because they have summer classes and the University of Maryland didn't, at least not for incoming students. And, um, and from that point on, you know, from 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 first uh, meeting with the advisor at Prince George's Community College uh, right outside Washington, D.C., and and becoming a, a full-time student there, my, my journey, my life has um, has been through 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 education and um, and through books. My first real job, you know, that I earned on my own was at a bookstore, Karibu Books. Second job when I came home, I worked at a paint store first, and then a month and a half later, I quit that job to work at a bookstore and take a $3 pay cut. Might have been the best decision of my life to decide to work for, for basically um, barely minimum wage. And, and I met I met so many people, um, including my wife, at that bookstore. So it was probably the best decision that I've ever made. And uh, But yeah, my journey since since release has been through through books and education. And law school, correct? Yeah, in law school. I went to Yale Law School. I'm, a, I'm an attorney. Um, and again, it's a, it's a set of skills. It, it allows me, actually, I've been working to get friends of mine out of prison, uh, represent people on parole, represent people on clemency. I think the, the story of my life has been one of regret and one of desire and mercy. And I think we talk about criminal justice reform and, and we don't enough talk about what it means to be a merciful um, society. Mark Osler, the, one of the foremost clemency attorneys in the country, gave me a a coin from some Roman realm and, and, and the word on it is mercy. And, and, and he asked me something like, what would it mean if this, this coin was the equivalent of a penny in the United States? And he was like, what would it mean if we lived in a country where, where the most populous currency, the, the thing that you could find anywhere, reminded you of the, of the need for mercy? And so um, I like to think that my legal work and, and also the work of Freedom Reads is about trying to center um, mercy and, and trying to center uh, forgiveness. So Reginald Dwayne Betts, if people are interested in contributing to Freedom Reads, do you take contributions? Is there a website they can go to? Uh, yes, we definitely take contributions. We are a 501c3, so everything is um, you know tax deductible. And um, our website is freedom, F-R-E-E-D-O-M, reads, R-E-A-D-S dot org. You could go to the website, you could find more, learn more about our work. You can download our recent newsletters that talks about the, um, the libraries that we've installed in prisons across the country. Uh, the first two libraries we installed were in the Angola Correctional Center 
um, the Louisiana State Prison Correctional Center, but formerly called Angola in Louisiana, at MCI Norfolk, where Malcolm X served his time, that we gutted out a prison cell at MCI Norfolk and replaced the bunk and other fixtures with a library. And so it's been a, a beautiful journey, in fact. Um, and, and I think that that people will dig learning more about the work, and, and I hope that they would be um, encouraged to contribute and to support. Reginald, De Reginald Dwayne Betts is the founder of Freedom Reads. We appreciate your time on Book TV and About Books. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And this is About Books, a podcast and program which looks at the business of publishing. Well, new books are generally released on Tuesdays, and here are some that came out recently. In his latest book, The Return, longtime political consultant Dick Morris says that President Trump will run and win in 2024. And in The Disney Revolt, author Jake Friedman chronicles the 1941 labor strike that pitted anti-union Walt Disney against some of his most talented animators and led to a studio shutdown for weeks. Well, one program on Book TV is in-depth. It's our monthly program, which is a deep dive with one author and his or her body of work. Our most recent guest was author, talk show host, and California gubernatorial candidate, Larry Elder. He joined Book TV to take calls about political correctness, the left, and racial politics in the United States. He's the author of 10 Things You Can't Say in America and other books. Here's some of what he had to say. He wanted to know what is it that drives me to do what I do. And the answer is, I think this is an amazing country. All of us hit the lottery when we were born on American soil. Uh, you were doubly blessed if you were, as I was, uh, raised by two parents who worked together to try to inculcate the right kind of values into my brothers and me. And I want people to, to not be misled by the misdirection by so many of our so-called leaders. Uh, the idea that uh, you're owed something, that health care is a right, that's not true. Uh, that a minimum wage of $15 is, is helpful. That's not true. Uh, that uh, systemic or structural or uh, institutional racism still plagues America. That isn't true. Uh, that voter ID is some sort of uh, con game to suppress the vote, which is what uh, Eric Holder, our former AG, once said. I'm paraphrasing. Um, my, my, my goal is to get people to realize their God-given potential. And you can't do that if you're sitting around uh, playing the victim. And as with all Book TV programs, you can watch this interview in its entirety at our website, booktv.org. Well, thanks for joining us for About Books. This is a podcast and program produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. You can listen to it and the entire library of C-SPAN podcasts on the C-SPAN Now app or wherever you get your podcasts.